Vermont Businesses for Social Responsibility presents the Vermont Conversation with David Goodman, exploring ideas with innovators, changemakers, business leaders, politicians, and activists. This special feature from Vermont Businesses for Social Responsibility is underwritten in part by the Alchemist Brewery of Waterbury and Stowe, proud B Corp, using the power of business to support a clean environment and economic opportunity for all. Vermont Student Assistance Corporation. VSAC helps students of all ages save, plan, and pay for college and career training with education and career planning services, need-based grants, scholarships, low-cost education loans, and Vermont's official 529 college savings plan. Green Mountain Power, delivering clean, cost-effective, and highly reliable power to customers and offering cutting-edge products and services to reduce costs and carbon. UVM Medical Center, Burlington, Vermont, the heart and science of medicine. Norwich Solar Technologies, providing complete clean energy services to Vermont's schools, towns, nonprofits, and businesses. Concept 2, designers and manufacturers of Concept 2 rowing oars, indoor rower, ski erg, and bike erg, and proud to support nonprofit groups such as the Green Mountain Club. Let's Grow Kids, a statewide campaign about the need for more high-quality, affordable childcare in Vermont to better support our children, families, communities, and economy. And nearly 700 VBSR business members who believe that sustainable business practices value people, planet, and profit. Learn more at www.vbsr.org. Welcome to the Vermont Conversation. I'm David Goodman. Today we spend the hour with Vermont House Speaker Mitzi Johnson. Mitzi Johnson was elected to the Vermont House of Representatives in 2002 from a district that includes the towns of Alburgh, Grand Isle, Isle Lamont, North Hero, South Hero, and West Milton. She served on the Agriculture Committee and was later chair of the Appropriations Committee. She was elected Speaker of the House in 2017. Speaker Mitzi Johnson, welcome back to the Vermont Conversation. Thanks for having me, David. I'm going to take a guess that, like a lot of Vermonters, your eye was on the national news uh, last night, uh, maybe like me, up until late, uh, seeing some of the Western state results come in. Um, I just have to ask, it is, you know, since it is now essentially a two-person race between Bernie Sanders and Joe Biden, what is your reaction to what happened yesterday? Um, you know, I, I am above all else, uh, anything uh, in in the camp of, um, you know, this president currently has not proven that he can that he can do the job sanely and inclusively and well. And so I will be looking for whoever can beat him. <laughs> are you uh, are you surprised to see Bernie Sanders, uh, you know, this race widow winnow down? to where uh, Bernie, who's certainly somebody most Vermonters know, is is one of the, the two finalists. Well, not, not terribly surprised. It's what we saw last time, right? As people that have run before that have built bases um, have an advantage in any race. And, and he built a very strong base last, last time around in the last presidential election. And so, um, and, and he's always had a really good ground game um, in in any race, and so it's it's not it's not terribly surprising um, that he is, um, you know that 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 he's that he's come as far as he has this time either. 
Do you read anything into? I mean, he had big wins, obviously, California, Colorado, Utah, and Vermont. Uh, in 2016, Bernie won with more than 85% of the vote in Vermont, and this time won with uh, just 51% of the vote. Do you read anything into that? You know, that, that was very surprising to me, um, that, that, he, that he won Vermont by a much smaller margin. Um, I, I, think, I think that, for me, is attributable to um, the, you know, the amount of additional candidates in the race on Super Tuesday. Right. Um, you know, it was, even though there were some other people kind of around the fringes, it was basically a two-person race from the start in 2016, um, and uh, um, or at least, if not from the start, from early on. Um, and so the fact that we still had so many and so many interesting, strong candidates and the fact that we're four years later um, was was a was a little surprising, but I think can, you know, can be explained by quite a few other factors. And I, you know, I think um, even though even though Warren hasn't hasn't taken any states, not even her own, um, I think there are there are still, you know, there's she still speaks to quite a few people um, in, in just having people that are ready to see, to see a, you know, a, a capable, experienced, competent woman in the White House. Right. Um, well, let's turn to your house, literally, uh, the Vermont House. Um, the recent weeks saw a lot of political drama. The governor vetoed paid family leave, which the House and Senate had passed here. And the House attempted to override the uh, gubernatorial veto, but failed in that override by one vote. And then shortly after that, the governor vetoed an increase in the minimum wage, and the House succeeded in overriding the veto by one vote. Um, first, I should point out that veto overrides in Vermont are exceedingly rare. The last time in Vermont uh, that the legislature successfully overrode a gubernatorial veto was in 2009, 11 years ago, when Democrats overrode then-Governor Jim Douglas's veto of a state budget and also Vermont's landmark uh, same-sex marriage bill. Talk about what happened with both of these uh, bills uh, and the overrides, um, and and maybe just start with why you were in this position to begin with. Why did the governor veto these bills, and was it a surprise to you? Uh, so no, I, I wasn't at all surprised. I'll start with the the very easy question. Um, the governor had been clear all along that um, you know that he wouldn't support an all in approach to paid family leave. Um, and, um, and we, we tried in a lot of different ways to put forth concepts that would, um, make it a modest start, that would make it extremely, um, affordable, that could really build on, build on the dynamics that we all agree on, uh, which is the need for younger people in Vermont and our aging demographic and working to bring back a generation of Vermonters that are out and about in the world to, to come home, stay, work, raise a family, and take care of their parents. Um, and, uh, and I think even despite our agreement on all of those broad 
dynamic set of challenges that our state is facing, um, the governor, there was there was no path for him to to um, to want to be on board in in an inclusive all in approach to paid family leave. Um, but but we really felt like that is uh, from what we've seen in other states and what actuaries tell us about how much it costs and who's likely to be able to take advantage. That was um, that was still a, a a very important thing to do. And you'll. Um, I don't know, one of the one of the sort of litmus tests for me um, on, you know, whether or not you're about to go, you know, too far in a compromise um, is, you know, do you have people on both the left and the right that are unhappy? And uh, and sure enough, we did have one person in paid family leave kind of on the left side of things who who would not override the veto because it was. Um, because it wasn't broad enough, the, the policy wasn't uh, strong enough, uh, um, and we had we had a, a couple of people, a few Democrats on on the right, uh, more moderate Democrats, who um, you know who who wouldn't support it because they also did not necessarily believe in um, the all-in approach, and um, and I think the you know the 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 biggest part there was was one person that had um, had it indicated support that that said she would help um, try to get some other votes and ended up saying no when her name was called on the floor. Um, and so I think any one of those paths could have been slightly different and got us to a paid family leave policy for for Vermont, um, but didn't. You know, as you said, veto overrides are extremely difficult and not only has it been so long since the last one when you look back at the 230 year history of vermont there have been a total of now with with minimum wage 11 veto overrides in all of vermont's history um so it is quite rare are there consequences for the uh the member who switched her vote um you know th- uh, that's a question that I get asked frequently, and certainly when um, when I put people as a, as a speaker, it is my job to assign everybody to uh, committees, to assign positions of committee leadership, and I need to know that that people in key positions are people that um, people that I can trust, and I have never insisted on. Uh, on straight agreement with me. Um, there are certainly um, other political leaders that uh, we see even now, um, one in particular, who, if they are disagreed with, there are severe consequences. And it's not the disagreeing, because I think disagreeing makes us stronger. I want people around me that are going to sort of poke holes in my theories and, 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 and try to make whatever policy we're working on, something that works for all of Vermont. Um, but, you know, folks, folks, make, folks make decisions on a daily basis about whether they want to be part of the team or whether they want to be the lone wolf. And I think um, I, have, I have created a lot of opportunities so that people who, um, you know, people with al- alternate viewpoints can really step in and be a part of the conversation and help make an idea or a bill stronger. But when it comes down to it in Montpelier, 
Uh, I remember my, my very first year, um, a senior legislator told me to get anything done, you got to count to six, you got to count to 76, and you got to count to 16. So the six gets a bill out of committee, the 76 gets a bill out of the House to the Senate, and 16 gets a bill through the Senate floor. Um, and this is, when you get down to it, a team sport. Well, and then there's being able to count to 100, uh, which is what mm. uh, results in a veto override. Yeah. Um, if you're just tuning in, you're listening to the Vermont Conversation. We're spending the hour this week with House Speaker Mitzi Johnson. If you want to join this conversation, if you have questions for the speaker about uh, legislation pending or passed, uh, you can call us and join the conversation by calling uh, 802-244-1777. Um, well, let's move over to the uh, governor's to the minimum wage uh, legislation. Governor vetoed it, and in this instance, you had to change. I believe it was six Democrats who voted against raising the minimum wage to vote for overriding the governor. Uh, talk about how that worked. How did you do that? Well, so I think um, I think we. we we also had a fairly large number um, move in the paid family leave conversation as well. And I think what people don't appreciate is <clears throat> that as a bill moves through the process on its way to the governor, <clears throat> the question is, you know, is this bill um, the law that I think is the best possible version of this? And, um, and throughout the minimum wage debate, uh, we had people worried about uh, rural communities and small businesses, mom-pop stores in rural communities. And we had people worried about Vermonters who are served by Medicaid-based agencies. So anybody who receives services um, through, let's say, our visiting nurses or our nursing homes um, or... Um, uh, you know, mental health services. Um, although many of our mental health services are no longer paying minimum wage because of increases that we've given them to stabilize those agencies in past years. So, so let's just take our visiting nurses, for example, a bulk of their income through the Choices for Care program is, um, is paid for through Medicaid rates, which have... Um, have not kept up over the last 10 years with inflation. And so, um, and so it can be, you know, it can be difficult. And so we had, I think those, the six votes that you're referring to are, um, are people that fell into one of those two camps, folks that, folks that were concerned about small rural businesses, folks concerned about um, our people served by Medicaid um, based agencies. Um, and, and so so all along in the conversation, they were saying, look, we need to, we need to somehow acknowledge this. And, and th those people, you know, speaking to my point about welcoming disagreement to help make a bill stronger, all of those people did a tremendous job of moving the conversation um, to, for minimum wage to be able to work for both the employers and the employees of those entities that I mentioned you know, we started off the minimum wage conversation last year at getting to $15 an hour by 2023. And by the time the bill got to the governor's desk, um, the bill was 
rather than $15 by 23, it was $12.55 by 22. And so, um, you know, so I think, I think, you know, those, those folks in our conversations were able to recognize, um, how, how much, uh, you know, their concerns had, had really moved the conversation to try to make these first steps of this bill work for, um, work for everybody. And, um, and when you look, when you look kind of at the whole package of things that we're doing to try to help rural Vermont, um, and to try to, to try to support some of the Medicaid based agencies, um, I think, I think when they were, when they were ready to get to that second question, not the, is this the best version of the bill? I can make it, but, um, you know, but in that final question of, am I going to stand between, you know, between this bill becoming law or not? Um, you know, they were, they were willing to, um, they were willing to, to stand with the, the Vermonters working those 40,000 jobs that pay less than 1255. How does, uh, uh, being, you know, successfully overriding the governor's veto, and again, the first time in 11 years that that's happened in Vermont, how does it change the political dynamics in Montpelier? Um, you know, I think it's a, I think it's an important recognition of, of the constitutional powers that the legislature has, you know, because it, it has to be the House and Senate together. Um, that are, you know, that are working together um, if there is. And so that, you know, there are 180 people in the House and there's one person in the governor's office, but his one vote is equivalent to our collective 180 votes. Um, and, and so I, I, think it, I think it really does help, um, help to, to solidify the power of the, legislat- the, the legislative branch of government um, particularly in cases where we have a governor who has, you know, set a record for the number of vetoes in a single biennium um, and has not always come to the table early on. You know, so, so, so many times we, we try to engage the, the administration and rather than having those, those, you know, those quiet conversations about here are the things that are important to me, here are the things that I need for this bill to move forward, we hear, well, We'll, we'll wait and read it when it gets to our desk, and then we'll decide. Well, at that point, it's too late. Um, and, so, and so I think, I think it helps to, to reestablish, um, you know, some of, that, some of that legislative power, and, and, um, and it helps legislators across the political spectrum understand why they need to, why they need to be, listening to each other, not just fighting for their own particular viewpoint, but why they need to listen to legislators of differing viewpoints um, to help craft a bill that, that, is, that is reasonable, that does work for all of Vermont, and that potentially could be overridden. Why uh, are we in this situation with uh, essentially government by veto? Um, you would have to ask the person vetoing honestly, because, because a number of the bills um, that he's vetoed really did um, incorporate language suggested by his administration, the medical monitoring 
bill, uh, for example, the, the bill that says that, um, you know, if corporations pollute and Vermonters um, are, are affected, that if, a, if the Vermonters can prove that, um, that they've been affected, then the, then the corporation needs to pay for just basic health monitoring. Um, you know, we include, that was one example where we actually included language from the administration, from the governor's agencies, and, and he still vetoed it. Um, so I, I feel like now there, there are some things like paid family leave that the governor was clear about from the beginning, like here's the line, but, but, but what he was asking for was too big of a give that was not going to serve Vermonters. Um, and so that, that, that's one where we knew we were walking into a veto situation, but there are, there are quite a lot of others that, um, that we've made attempts and the goalposts move or there's just not a lot of communication um, and we still wind up in, in veto land. So uh, back to paid family leave, what happens to paid family leave now that uh, there was an unsuccessful override attempt? Uh, we bring the conversation up again next year. You know, last year, last year we were, there were many, many legislative candidates that, um, that were out on the campaign trail talking about the need for this. If we're going to, if we talk about wanting young people in the state, um, then we need to have policies that, that are friendly to young people that make us competitive with other states where young people are concerned. Uh, we went out, we campaigned on that. We picked up 12 seats in doing so. Um, you know, and, and it's something that polling shows that Vermonters are interested in. So, um, so we pick it up again next year. Once a bill has, has been vetoed and that, and a veto override is unsuccessful, then, then that, that, that particular bill dies for the year. Um, so we can't, amend it and send it back. You'd have to start the process all over again. And it would have to be a, a, a different bill because you, you, can't, um, you can't vote on the same bill twice once you've turned it down. What is the biggest issue coming up in the House? Hmm. Um, well, you, 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 David, know that I am at heart a budget geek. Um, and so... And so, the you know the budget and where we put our money is the most significant piece that has a lot of different components in it. Um, <laughs> the you know and, and those are things like um, things like what, what investments are we going to make in electric vehicle and electric vehicle infrastructure in stabilizing our pension funds in. Um, in any any additional supports for higher education, for our um, our various community-based agencies that help Vermonters, you know, live independently and with dignity, um, you know, for for child support, uh, child protections rather for our judicial system. So, um, so that's that's going to be a where a lot of energy is focused um, in the two weeks after after this week, after town meeting week. Um, some of the other issues on our radar are workforce in general and particularly the healthcare workforce. We 
are experiencing, I think the nursing shortage gets talked about a lot, but we also have shortages across the range of healthcare services from community-based health and mental health supports, um, you know, through primary care and, and certain specialties. So I think really looking at, at healthcare workforce and, um, and, and in the area of economic development, um, the, the biggest issue that we hear about is, is the lack of available workforce. And that's, you know, that's what happens when you have this historic sustained period of, of record low unemployment, not just in Vermont, but across the country. Um, and, uh, and, and that's, I think, compounded in Vermont because of our demographic issues. Um, so really looking at creative ways to, um, to make Vermont really the, the premier place for people to want to live and, and have a job. And um, what do you think this workforce and worker shortage issue, uh, it's an issue we've dealt, dealt with here in the Vermont Conversation, um, it, it's ever-present. What do you think is the most powerful thing we could do uh, to address that? I mean, currently we're in the position of paying people to move here. That does not seem very sustainable. I would agree with you there. Um, you know, our, our Commerce and Economic Development Committee in the House hit on a very interesting conversation, you know, for for a good number of years now. There have been various business groups that have engaged with early childhood uh, providers and advocates in the conversation around child care. And, and something clicked with that committee not long ago um, to say, hey, you know what, one of the, you know, we have this, I mean, sure, sure, we'll do what we can to attract people to work or to, to come here. Um, the people doing that also have the issue of housing, which we've tried to take steps on as well, um, but it's not going to instantly solve the problem. We have, we do have people in Vermont that could be a more active part of the workforce, um, but for childcare and transportation. Those are the two biggest hurdles to kind of growing our workforce within our Vermont resources. Um, and so, and so we're going to, we're going to keep looking at how we can, how we can better improve um, access to childcare and affordability of childcare, as well as, um, as well as transportation. Our transportation committee is having a robust conversation about public transportation. We're going to uh, come back to us. We're going to take a short break for the news here at the bottom of the hour. You're listening to the Vermont Conversation. We're spending the hour with House Speaker Mitzi Johnson. Uh, Stay tuned, and we'll be right back after the news. The Vermont Conversation with David Goodman is brought to you by Vermont Businesses for Social Responsibility and by Vermont Student Assistance Corporation, Green Mountain Power, Concept 2, Norwich Solar Technologies, The Alchemist Brewery, Let's Grow Kids, UVM Medical Center, and nearly 700 business members of Vermont Businesses for Social Responsibility who believe that sustainable business practices value people, planet, and profit. Welcome back to the Vermont Conversation. I'm David Goodman. 
We're spending the hour this week talking with Vermont House Speaker Mitzi Johnson. Johnson was elected to the House of Representatives in 2002 and was elected Speaker in 2017. If you want to join this conversation, if you have thoughts about legislation or what's going on in Vermont of any sort, feel free to join this conversation by calling us at 244-1777. Speaker Johnson, uh, every year the governor puts out shiny objects, uh, very appealing policies or programs, and it's left to the House to look at how they're paying for them. (laughs) (laughs) So true. So what are some of the uh, programs that uh, the governor has put out there that as you look behind the curtain, uh, you're not seeing ways to pay for them or you think there needs to be different uh, means that come up? Yeah, um, I, I would also point out too that um, that while there are certain th- certainly things that I disagree with this governor about, and I'm critical of this governor about uh, this particular dynamic that you mentioned, is just for any governor and legislative branch. It's, it doesn't matter who who's who's in office. This is part of what happens. Um, Fair enough. Uh, um, the I think. Um, you know, there, there's very little of of the ideas or programs that I disagree with in this in this governor's budget. Um, like I, like you mentioned, it's really about how to pay for it and where the priorities are. You know, that's that's one thing that I've tried to harp over and over and over on is is we should make sure that the most effective programs to to build the strongest, healthier, healthiest future that we can are the ones funded first, and so that we're fighting over our fourth and fifth tier priorities, right? Um, and one of the one of the one of the things that um, probably not um, funded as well as it could be um, is our pension funds. the The governor's recommended budget does um, meet just the basic actuarial recommendations, so I'm not criticizing that. Um, but we are inches away after years of hard work, we are inches away from getting to what's, what's called a pre-funding of retiree health care and, and some things that are huge liabilities for us um, that with another, you know, three to six million dollars would make, would make a, another big step of difference in wiping another three or four hundred million dollars of liabilities off our books because we are sort of beginning to pre-fund those things so that our pre-funding investments can grow over time without uh, more taxpayer input. So I think that's that's one of the places that I think um, should have been higher in the priority list of the governor's budget. Um, the the other you know the other piece I would think about is um, is some of the more standard economic development tools uh, supports for businesses that are out there. What, what I, I talked about in the first half of the program was that that's not, that's not the, um, you know, the, that's not the factor that is reigning in economic growth at the moment. It's availability of workforce. So I think having more of those economic development resources shifted to growing the workforce is appropriate when we have such low unemployment. In times of higher unemployment, then yes, absolutely, 
the best way to grow the economy is to support the businesses. Um, but it, it's, really, it's really figuring out ways to support the workers that is the biggest hindering factor in growing the economy right now. Shortly before the town meeting day break, the House passed the Global Warming Solutions Act, which turns climate goals into binding requirements uh, and makes uh, binds Vermont to uh, being net zero by 2050. Uh, it passed with a tripartisan vote of 105 to 37. What are its prospects as it moves um, forward? I think that's a that's a terrific question for the Senate, who is now in charge of Global Warming Solutions Act. Um, we've we've had some terrific conversations with them, and and they are, um, you know, they're they're taking that up and looking to move forward. I think I think this is um, this is this is a way to put. Vermonters will into uh, sort of concrete parameters. Most Vermonters that I know were horrified at the United States pulling out of the Paris Climate Accords. Um, this this act, Global Warming Solutions Act, puts um, puts that it basically operationalizes that um, the goals of the Paris Climate Accord and says, okay. We all seem to agree, even the governor has spoken up in favor of the Paris Climate Accord. We all seem to agree that this is the goal we all should meet. And, um, and so these are the steps we need to get there. It's terrific having a goal out there in the ether. Um, but to make it happen, you need the concrete, measurable steps. Um, and, so, and so this begins the process to help putting those steps into place. I also think that... Um, that in addition to being environmentally responsible, it is um, it's economically prudent as well because the earlier we start on those goals, the more achievable they are. At some point, um, there will be a new administration in the White House that will rejoin the rest of the world in in acknowledging that we all need to do our part to mitigate climate change um, and. And I would hate to, to, for Vermont to be in a place where, where we all of a sudden have to play a massive amount of catch-up um, to, to join the rest of the world. Um, let's talk a little bit about the issue of marijuana, of taxing and regulating cannabis. Um, you know, increasingly we are surrounded by uh, Quebec, New York, Massachusetts that are moving forward with various uh, forms of legalization and sales. Um, where are we at in Vermont and what's it going to take to move this forward? Uh, so last week, are we at Wednesday? A week ago today. Uh, the the House gave preliminary approval to a tax and regulate bill on a fairly strong vote. Um, again, tripartisan uh, vote, and um, and so and so now and that the Senate passed a version of the bill last year. <clears throat> so now um, now we're at a place where the House and the Senate and hopefully the administration joins that part of the conversation. Um, uh, we'll have to sort of negotiate and work out the differences between between the, the two chambers. 
uh, between the two versions of the bill, because the House and the Senate have to pass the exact same version of the bill um, to get it to the governor's desk. So, um, so that bill lays out a process for, um, you know, for, for, uh, for legalized sales. Um, you know, the wording's a little tricky because the drug is still illegal. It's still a schedule one drug on the federal level. So, so we can't, quite make it legal in Vermont, but we can eliminate all penalties and kind of sanction the sale of it um, within the state. And, um, and so, and so the, there are some significant differences between the House and the Senate versions, um, but I think, I think folks are, are willing to, to, you know, talk through that and work it out. One of the sticking points will be in roadside testing, saliva testing. Um, at the very same moment that the House was uh, voting on a provision to um, to allow roadside saliva testing for impairments, um, the governor was speaking about it at a press conference. And while the governor was saying, I must have this provision in order to sign this bill, the House um, was voting on an amendment that, of that exact same provision and half of the Republicans in the house voted against it. Um, so that's going to, that, that's one of the things that will be a very significant sticking point. I have said from the beginning that, um, that roadside safety is, or that, that highway safety is, is something that is very important to me as we, as we um, have this conversation, but it's become clear that there is not a saliva test, scientifically that it that exists to be um to be accurate to test for presence of a substance and to be able to test impairment because it's it's um marijuana is just thc the active ingredient is is metabolized and processed very differently in your body than alcohol so alcohol we're all used to a roadside test that's fairly accurate that does not exist um for thc and so um and so the, the strategy here is to expand the use of drug recognition experts that are very good at their jobs of testing for um, impairment on the highways, which is which is the real test. And so I hope we can um, we can work on that as we as we move forward. And honestly, I think as more states um, move to a tax and regulate system, the science will catch up with the policy and we will get to a place where there's a, an, an accurate um, test uh, for this, at which point I would be very happy to talk about it. But for now, we're doing the best we can with it. So are you saying that absent a, so there is the, the, you know, the, the recognition programs, as you mentioned, there's the problem with the saliva testing, um, are you do you feel comfortable moving forward with this with the you know these uh the recognition programs being the roadside safety mechanism that's what we do now i mean it, you know we already have people driving uh driving under impairment from all sorts of substances legal or not and um and the the drug recognition experts uh the this specially trained group of people within the state police and, uh, and other places, I believe, um, uh, 
you know, our, our, our current tools that we use. And so looking to expand that, I think, uh, yes, I am, I am comfortable with, I do support that. And, um, and we'll just, we'll just need to see if, if the, you know, the, the governor um, can get comfortable with that as well. Um, we're, uh, for those just tuning in, we're spending the hour speaking with House Speaker Mitzi Johnson of Vermont. Um, Speaker Johnson, you are currently one of just eight female speakers of the House in this country. Uh, all but one of them are Democrats. Uh, what does it mean to you to be uh, among this uh, small group? It, this, of course, means that 42 of the others are males. So, um this is progress, but slow. Um, but what does that mean to you to be the female leader of this body? I am incredibly proud of the title, Madam Speaker. Um, I, you know, and when I, I have, um, I think one of the one of the just most incredible parts of the job is talking with groups of young women um, or or little girls who can see somebody sort of like them in a role of power and authority. Um, and, you know, cause you, you walk through the state house and, but for three portraits that are, that are hanging up, it's all men um, and white men. And so, and so for, for half of the population of Vermont to somehow see themselves um, in, in a strong leadership role, I think opens opens the doors. Um, I had one little girl come up to me. I was talking with her parent, who I had uh, I had I used to know a long time ago, and we were chatting. and uh, And the little girl kind of tugged on my jacket and looked at me and said, "Are you a girl boss?" <laughs> <laughs> and And it was important to her to to see a girl boss. Um, and to know that that was possible. And so that, that piece is really exciting. Um, I am the third woman speaker of Vermont, and I keep asking, at what point do we stop counting? Mm. Right? Um, you know, you, you mentioned that there are eight women uh, speakers of states um, in the country, plus the one in Washington, and that is the, the highest number of women speakers that this country has ever had. So women have now had the right to vote for a hundred years and we are all the way up to 16% of female leaders in, in state capitals. And we got to step it up. And the Vermont Senate has never had a woman pro tem. Now there's, you know, there's an opportunity for that next year with the current pro tem moving on to run for lieutenant governor. Um, you know, so so perhaps next year we, we break that glass ceiling in Vermont and, and get our very first uh, female pro tem in the state. But um, I, I guess so. I'm, I'm very I'm very proud of it myself. And I'm also frustrated that 100 years into voting equality, um, we're still celebrating a whopping 16%. Do you think there are ways that women lead? You mentioned Speaker Pelosi in Congress, uh, yourself, uh, that there are ways that women lead that are different, uh, that 
bring a different perspective to how a legislative body works? Um, I, you know, I, I think, I think there can be very different ways. As, you know, there's obviously a very broad spectrum of how men lead and a very broad spectrum of how women lead. <laughs> um, but, but those two spectrum, while those two spectrums overlap a chunk, um, that yes, there are. I believe there are things that that women do differently. I also think that there are that that women can be more constrained in their leadership. Um, you know, there's there there were certainly speakers before me that did a lot more overt uh, punishing or or were a little more you know. Uh, command and control about things. And, um, and there are ways that, that, that the, the broader public doesn't accept women doing those things. Um, we often, we often run into, you know, you look at the presidential debate, uh, and the presidential primary, um, you know, women have effectively been shut out of that this year. And we had a number of really good, women candidates that couldn't raise the money and haven't pulled in the delegates. Um, and, and so many people will say, well, no, 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 I, I'm okay with a woman leading. I just don't like her. And you don't hear that as much with men in the race. Um, you, you, you don't hear as much about a man's electability. Um, you constantly hear that about about a woman, and so there are there there. I I really feel like I've I've you know, and along with the rest of the country, have gotten a chance to really look at some of the ways that we have a really deep seated sexism in the country that that doesn't um, that doesn't accept women in power as readily, and uh, and that that can be. That can be very frustrating. Do you feel that you've encountered that, and and if so, how? Oh, um, y- yes, absolutely. I have encountered that. Uh, you know, I my at the end of my first year as speaker was was the um, kind of breakthrough of the Me Too movement, and so at that point, I got to spend a bunch of time talking with people about, um, about some of the, some of the harassment that I experienced, um, in my, you know, many years in the state house. And, and even without going into detail on all that stuff now, just, just thinking about the amount of bandwidth that it took in my brain to keep myself safe, to navigate those waters, to, to try to put up some guardrails about what behavior was acceptable to me without alien, alienating anybody that I needed to kind of be a team player with um, was something that, you know, for example, my counterpart in the Senate didn't have to negotiate as much. Um, you know, that, that's one element of it. Another, another element is just some of the, um, uh, some of the reporting on on where I've succeeded and failed versus 
again, my, my Senate counterpart, who's done a terrific job. This isn't, this isn't in no way about him, or, or I'm not trying to make any commentary about him. It's about how we are reported on um, and, what, and, and what is acceptable for each of us to do. Um, I think, um, you know, and, and I, and it's that, I think there's a little bit of a, there can be a catch 22 at times where, where, um, some of that more, more top down leadership is, I might get a little more pushback about that, but, but then some of the, some of the kind of encouraging the um, kind of grassroots development of, of ideas and consensus building isn't as uh, just isn't as, as sexy, isn't as recognized as uh, a strong leadership style. And um, so it, it, I have constraints about doing one and I'm criticized for doing the other at times. So so there, there can be, there's a little more of a, um, I would say a narrow band, a more narrow band of leadership that I am allowed to practice than male counterparts might be. Okay, well, we're going to have to leave it there. Uh, Speaker Mitzi Johnson, I want to thank you for joining us this week on the Vermont Conversation. Thanks for having me, David. Nice to chat with you. Uh, Mitzi Johnson is the Speaker of the Vermont House of Representatives. That does it for this week's Vermont Conversation. You can hear this in all shows at vermontconversation.com. We'll be back next Wednesday at 1 with another Vermont Conversation. I'm David Goodman. Thanks so much for listening. The Vermont Conversation with David Goodman. This special feature from Vermont Businesses for Social Responsibility is underwritten in part by... Vermont Student Assistance Corporation. VSAC helps students of all ages save, plan, and pay for college and career training with education and career planning services, need-based grants, scholarships, low-cost education loans, and Vermont's official 529 college savings plan. Norwich Solar Technologies, providing complete clean energy services to Vermont schools, towns, nonprofits, and businesses. Green Mountain Power, delivering clean, cost-effective, and highly reliable power to customers and offering cutting-edge products and services to reduce costs and carbon. The Alchemist Brewery of Waterbury and Stowe, proud B Corp, using the power of business to support a clean environment and economic opportunity for all. UVM Medical Center, Burlington, Vermont, the heart and science of medicine. Let's Grow Kids, a statewide campaign about the need for more high-quality, affordable childcare in Vermont to better support our children, families, communities, and economy. Concept 2, designers and manufacturers of Concept 2 rowing oars, indoor rower, ski erg, and bike erg, and proud to support nonprofit groups such as the Green Mountain Club. And nearly 700 business members of Vermont Businesses for Social Responsibility who believe that sustainable business practices value people, planet, and profit.